Welcome to Give Methods a Chance, a podcast devoted to research methods in practice. In this episode, we talk with Justin Pickett, Assistant Professor at the School of Criminal Justice at SUNY Albany. We discuss using web-based surveys for public opinion polling and experiments. Justin provides guidance, tips, and tricks for using services like Amazon Mechanical Turk. I'm here with Justin Pickett today. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how about it? So we're going to have a conversation today about online surveys. Um, so if you were going to briefly introduce this specific method as um, to an undergraduate class who had never heard of it, how would you describe it? If, if I was introducing it to an undergrad class, it would differ from how I'd introduce it to a graduate class. With, it, with an undergraduate class, my focus would probably be on talking about some of the, the key issues with it. Um, I would basically describe the idea behind internet surveys to start with, and that's you know basically surveying people online um, at their own time and convenience, and and then point out the, the the key problems. And the key problems are that it's impossible really to reach everybody using web surveys uh, because not everyone has the internet. Um, the last estimate that I saw suggested that around seventy eight percent of adults in the U.S. have access to the internet. So even if you could get to all internet users, you'd still have a coverage bias problem. People who have the internet tend to be uh, uh, younger, better educated, have higher incomes, and to be white relative to black or Hispanic. So because of that and the inability to reach everybody via the internet, um, any survey that you do online, with the exception of those that are recruited offline like Knowledge Networks, is going to have a hard time representing the actual U.S. public. So that would be my um, kind of the way I would describe it to undergrads uh, simply people do web surveys it's really hard to do a, a representative sample because not everybody is online and even if everybody was online you can't contact everybody because there's not the equivalent of an rdd method you know a telephone number they randomly sample telephone numbers because the telephone numbers are structured to have an area code a prefix and a suffix and once you identify a prefix and you can randomly sample the suffix you can't do that with email addresses so even if you could get everybody online you can't do a Right. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about a specific project um, that you've done or have done with some others um, using this method. So with this project, you know, what is it and what were your essential research questions? I've done several projects using web surveys. Um, the, the most recent one, what we were trying to do is evaluate the sources of people's uh, perceived arrests. That's their perceptions of the probability of being arrested if they did something illegal. And um, we, the, the general research questions were that um, whether or not people drew on information or whether or not they estimated it off the top of their head um, intuitively, and if so, if their intuitive judgments were influenced heavily by their dispositional traits, like their personality types. Um, that was what we were trying to do. So we did three different web surveys on two different platforms to tap into that. Um, and then what was the design overall once you once you had these questions? How did you go about answering them? We developed measures of the key personality traits we were interested in, like positive and negative effect. We used the positive and negative effect schedule. 
and tolerance of ambiguity, cognitive reflection, and then we developed measures of perceived arrest risk where we gave people scenarios and asked them what the risk of being arrested is in that scenario, and then we fielded those surveys on online, and I'm sure I'll get to more detail about how we did it on SurveyMonkey, which has an online panel, a non-probability online panel, which simply means that the people are recruited into that panel in a way that not everybody in the U.S. has an equal, or not equal, but even any chance of being in the panel. Um, some people have no chance. So uh, it's a non-probability panel. And we did Amazon MTurk, which is a crowd surfing site where people go on, they choose to go on and uh, answer surveys or other human intelligence tasks. We filtered it there. So when you were coming up with this project, um, was going online and doing that, that sort of methodological approach, did that come first or was it the, the topic that kind of came first? Absolutely, the topic. Um, it, we, I was most interested in the topic, and then once I had a, a topic that I was interested in, my, my goal was to find a way to feasibly do it um, in a way that I thought I would get relatively valid inferences. Mm -hmm. um, so you do the surveys. Uh, what, what did you learn? What were some of the core findings? In our surveys across all three, the strongest predictors of both perceived arrest risk and someone's confidence in their perceived arrest risk were their stable personality traits hmm. um, and exposure to sources of information like prior arrest, prior offending, neighborhood disorder, uh, media consumption were really not related to people's perceived arrest risk. And in every situation, the relationships between personality traits and perceived arrest risk and ambiguity um, or confidence and risk perception were in the direction, all but one were in the direction that would be expected if arrest risk perceptions are intuitive judgments. That is that they're made using like the availability heuristic where you just estimate the probability of something based on how easy it is to imagine. Mm. So why the choice to go online then? I mean, how did you balance that, that against other ways to, to get survey respondents or other approaches? The main choice of going online, um, it was a combination of cost. It, it would blow your mind, uh, maybe not yours, but a lot of people's minds, the difference in cost. Um, I submitted a grant application to try to get money to actually do a similar study using a um, probability sample. And there are only, to my knowledge in the U.S., there are only two ways do a probability sample to the general public online, and that's using pre-recruited panels, and the only two that I know of are Knowledge Networks and the American Life Panel, which is uh, housed by RAND. The um, Knowledge Networks, the quote they gave me for the survey I wanted to do was $90,000. The survey I did on SurveyMonkey cost somewhere around $5,000, and the one I did on Amazon and Turk cost less than two hundred. Thinking a bit more broadly about your kind of bigger research questions, how did um, this approach fit in with the theoretical framing of the argument that you make? The, the, a lot of the things that I'm focusing on have to do with relationships or with the impact of recent exposure to information or things like that on um, attitudes. And for examining relationships, theoretical you know, predictions about why certain factors such as personality traits should be related to basically survey responses are how people should use new information and you give them in an experimental manipulation to formulate their attitudes. For those type of theoretical questions, using an um, online survey, even if it's not representative, is more justifiable in my head than if you're trying to describe the population at a given point in time, like what percent of people are going to vote for Barack Obama or McCain or Hillary Clinton if she runs in 2016. That type of question is... is it's harder to assess that via online survey. So, put simply, because the theories that we were looking at were dealing with relationships or with responses to experimental manipulations, it justified the, the method. So, um, let's talk a little bit more about just sort of the nuts and bolts of how you actually do this, how you collect and access data, um, and what the sampling strategy was. The first thing was to figure out 
panels to use. And there are a lot of places. SurveyMonkey has an audience panel. Amazon MTurk has a crowdsourcing um, option where you have workers. Um, Qualtrics, I believe is how you pronounce it, has an online panel. Survey Sampling International has an online panel. A lot of places have online panels. So it's just choosing the ones that you want. And there's no real clear right now preference to any of them. Um, and so what I wanted was somewhere where I could easily design the survey in a way that I thought was high quality. SurveyMonkey, when you do a project, they randomly sample their panelists, the people who are available to participate. So the results are generalizable back to those 400,000 people who are in the panel, which is there are more people in that panel than there are in just about almost all the cities in the U.S. Mm -hmm. city. So I thought that's pretty good. <laughs> right. Um, and so the combination of having that panel and the random sampling of that panel and the ability to develop the survey attracted me. Amazon and Turk attracted me because of the, there's just in every other field of criminology and sociology, and we're finally doing it now. Uh, Amazon and Turk, they've been doing it for two or three years. Every top journal, American Journal of Political Science, Psychological Science, every top journal in other disciplines has published at least one Amazon and Turk survey. So I thought given that it's been validated in so many studies and that there are a lot of resources for finding out how to do it, that I would try that too. Cooling about Amazon and Turk is that you can link to a survey that you created in Survey Gizmo or Qualtrics or SurveyMonkey in Amazon and Turk, so they click on that and they go to the survey place, complete the survey, and then they go back to Amazon and Turk. So I like that too. So what went wrong? <laughs> what barriers or challenges did you face um, when you were collecting data or designing the study? Um, there are a ton of them. The thing is, online surveys are, are amazing and a lot of really good strength. They also have a lot of ways that you can mess it up. For example, one of the biggest things is is who to exclude and who to include. So, like, if you go do an Amazon MTurk survey, you're going to have to decide which workers. And basically, in Amazon MTurk, anybody can sign up to be a worker. They get paid to take surveys. Whereas in SurveyMonkey, they don't get any direct economic incentive. They get entered into a lottery that's once a week. Every week, they have a lottery for $100. And every time they take a survey, they donate 50 cents to a charity of their choice. So there's both altruistic and potentially selfish reasons to take surveys, but it's not a direct payment. And Amazon and Turk, they get a direct payment. So it's two different incentive structure. One seems more inclined to uh, lead people to speed through surveys and stuff like that. But anyway, and one of the issues is duplicate respondents. Like when you're doing an Amazon and Turk survey, you have to decide which workers you're going to let take it. And so there are a lot of options. Like they have prior approvals. If you ever ordered anything off of Amazon.com, you can see like a seller's approval rating. Right. This bookseller has a 98% approval rating. Workers have the same thing. Hmm. Of all the previous tasks they've done, and on Amazon and Turk, it's called a human intelligence task. It can be a survey or anything else. It's just you post it and you offer to pay people to do it for you. You can see what their overall rating is on all of their prior tasks. So one of the things is decide what, the minimum rating is. Is it going to be 95% approval rating, 90% or somewhere below that? I chose 95%. There's a study by a group of people, Peer et al. in 2013 that shows that that 95% approval rating is something people really strive for and people with that approval rating do really, really good in surveys. They give high quality answers. So I wanted to include those people, but I did not want to exclude a lot of other people. So one of the mistakes that a lot of people make is to limit the surveys to people who've taken a thousand previous hits, human intelligence tasks on Amazon MTurk, or even 10,000. When you go on there, it gives you the option, only allow Amazon MTurk quote-unquote masters to take it. And, I mean, mastery, becoming a master on MTurk as a worker is really hard. Um, limit it to people who've had at least a thousand previous hits or any of that. If you do that, what you're doing is limit it to people who have 
um, extreme experience taking surveys and are going to be very, very different from people who have not taken a thousand surveys. So um, I suggested that you don't limit to, to the really high numbers. I allow people who had at least 50 hits to take it as opposed to a thousand. But if you go on there right now and you type in academic survey, you can find several people who you have to have 10,000 previous tasks to take their survey, which I mean, you're, you're getting really experienced survey takers. That was the first thing, who to exclude, who to include. Um, another issue is duplicate respondents. In Amazon and Turk, for example, um, everybody has one worker ID. If you make an account as a worker, they give you a quote-unquote random ID that's supposed to make you anonymous. It's not. There's a recent working study that showed that it's real easy to get people's information by typing in their ID because it's linked to their other Amazon account. But their worker ID um, is one per account. So that shouldn't limit people. You shouldn't have the only way that you could have a duplicate respondent in Turk if they made two accounts to get two worker IDs. Um, but if you relaunch the same project more than once, like if you launch it and and then you relaunch the same project, people with the same worker ID can take it again. So mm. I had to exclude that. And one way to do that is to create a qualification in 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 the creation tab. If you go and you create a survey, there's a tab. Um, an advanced option, and in there you can create a qualification and call it something like prior participation and only allow people who don't have a score on that to take the survey and then go through and all the people who participated in your previous projects, give them a score of like one. And now the only people who can take your new project or your relaunch survey are people who don't have that. Another thing to do in Amazon when you're trying to create a web survey is, is to make decisions like whether or not you want to allow scrolling or paging. So do you put all your questions on one page and allow people to scroll down to answer them, or do you put a couple questions on each page? And I had to make that decision, so I tried to find all the research I could on it, and there's actually very little research on it. But what I found suggested that scrolling um, is, is really good if you have only a very small number of questions and it's very simple. But if you have a large number of questions or any kind of complexity, like skip patterns or anything like that, scrolling doesn't work. In fact, it leads to item non-response and uh, slows down completion time. Is people just scroll right past the question because the more questions you have, the, the scroller, the little mouse thing on the scroller is going to be smaller. It'd be easier to scroll past the question. So I, I paginated all mine. I put like two or three questions that were related on each page and they had to click to the next page. Another thing I tried to do is uh, these are barriers and all that. One of, the, one of the barriers that you have to think about is how they're going to see the questionnaire. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of people actually take the surveys that you do on cell phone. Design the questionnaire on a screen like I have, which is probably 24 inches wide or something like that. Yeah. It looks really good, but when you open it on a tablet, you can't see anything. I tried to anticipate how it would be resized and also potentially how different types of servers and connections, like whether or not they had JavaScript, would change the visual survey. So basically, I tried to take out any kind of variables and make sure the font was big enough that if you read it on a tablet, you could still see it, that there wasn't so many questions on a, a single page that if you had it on a tablet, you couldn't see. When, you know, when we teach methods to, to students, we cover the concepts of generalizability and validity. So um, how did those two important considerations fit into your project? They, they fit a lot, and um, it, it's, it's an interesting question. Uh, generalizability and, and validity or external internal validity are, are important. The sad thing is that I, I think both are really important. The sad thing is that generalizability, I think, has almost become a heuristic for people in terms of deciding whether or not research is, um, is, is really good. And mm. they skip over some of the, the key things. So um, just as it, it, the, 
the short answer is that web surveys really, except for the kind that are done through knowledge networks um, or that are done to represent a particular group of people like those who visit a web page, lack external validity, at least theoretically. So you don't have a theoretical basis for externing, uh, you know, for assuming generalizability. Um, but that's not a huge issue, I mm -hmm. don't think, for most types of research. Um, but here are some small things that people don't think about. Uh, the Gallup and the GSS, even when they ask the same questions, give dramatically different answers because they're different modes, right? Um, Self-administered versus telephone. There's a whole huge research that shows that if you ask the same questions in a mail survey or telephone survey, you get, on average, like 20 percentage points more positive responses in the telephone survey. That uh, response categories that just strongly agree, neither strongly agree nor disagree, are the most the modal response category in self-administered, but are actually the least frequently endorsed in telephone surveys. So the point there is that things like mode, question order, and question wording have more of an effect on results sometimes than so so large of an effect on results, focusing only on generalizability. You open an article, you'll see a whole thing about their sampling approach. You will see nothing about question order, right, or the fact that the mode of the questionnaire, like telephone versus mail, may have dramatically overestimated the level of disorder in neighborhoods. That's an example of something like that. So is it, this is going to be kind of a different question for you given that you're, you're conducting these surveys in sort of this more remote way in terms of your interaction with the respondents, but um, you know, is there any way that you have to think about positionality or your own role as a researcher when designing these projects? It is real easy when designing surveys to get what you want. Um, for example, if you want to reduce presidential approval ratings in a survey, you just ask presidential approval ratings toward the end. Ask about family economic situation. Hey, how's your economic situation? How's your income? If you make more money now or then, how's the president doing? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's real easy to get what you want in a survey by changing small things about the survey. Um, so my goal when I've designed surveys is, is to completely try to be as objective and as I can and limit um, you know, any kind of decision that might shape the answer in a certain way. I'm real, I'm real keen on looking for question order effects, and if I think there's any potential for question order effects, to have two different versions with the question order randomized, which, you know, that helps reduce the, uh, the effect of it. Things like that. When you're, when you're doing these projects, you know, what is your intended audience, and how does that shape your questions? So that can be a broader public audience or... An intellectual community. I mean, what? How do you think about that that question as you're planning studies? I think my audience is me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think in general, what happens is I get interested in something, and I really am, am motivated because I want to know, and then I hope that other people do too. But I read somewhere some I, some some person at like Yale or Harvard somewhere noted that the majority of research never gets read by anybody, and that which does only gets read because they don't. <laughs> they, just, they just want to criticize it. Um, and I think, you know, hopefully there are people out there who appreciate it, but I, I'm really motivated by intellectual curiosity, so I just want to know. And I, and, and, um, but I hope that, the, I'm not saying it doesn't matter to me, I hope that the public and also um, other researchers, you know, are. We always end these conversations with just sort of a, a another kind of highlight of um, the limitations and then the benefits to this specific approach, because obviously we can answer questions with many different tools. So um, let's start with the limitations and then we'll, we'll close with what you see as the, the, the biggest benefits of, of this approach. Sure. The limitations are, are there are a lot of them. The, clearly the biggest one is that uh, it's impossible to do a web survey um, that it represents the general population unless you recruit them using RDB or address-based sample. You can't recruit them online, interview them online, and have a general population table. Because of that, 
99.9% of all web surveys are non-probability, which means they really do not have a theoretical um, justification for generalization. It doesn't mean they won't generalize, it just means you're not sure if they will or not. Mm -hmm. um, that's the limit. And so I, I would almost never, I probably never would, um, use a web survey to estimate the percent of the public that believes something or does something or has experienced something. That's not the, you know, you, you're not going to find out what percent of the public has been a victim on a web survey. But you can look at relationships and things. Some of the other limitations is that there's two meta-analyses that have shown that you get lower response rates on web surveys, about 11 percentage points lower, 11 percent lower um, than other modes. Um, and so that's an issue, uh, even though there's also evidence that response rates are not necessarily correlated with non-response error. In fact, they aren't normally correlated with non-response error. But even still, you get lower response rates. Um, that a very small number, here's one thing you would never think about. Most people who are in online panels are also members of many online panels. So it has a book that just came out, and they, they report several different studies. But the, in the U.S., the average panel member, like the average person who's a member of like the Survey Sampling International panel, I'm just using that as an example, I don't know for sure, is actually a member of four other panels, like four total panels. So there are hmm. four different panels. Some of them, like 40% of all panel members, are actually members of five or more panels. So there's a very small number of people out there on the internet who are actually members of panels, um, and so it's real clear that you can exhaust them. And even with that, like in Amazon MTurk, Chandler and some people looked at it, and they found that 10% of all Amazon MTurk workers completed 40% of all hits. So that like half of your sample are people who are completing tons and tons of surveys. That was an issue. And because of that, they identified this concept called non-naivety. Basically, that most of, not most, well, yeah, most, um, over 50% had been exposed to some of the really common things that sociologists and psychologists use to measure things, like the prisoner dilemma and other moral dilemmas, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the cognitive reflection test. They, they found like 56% of the workers um, had previously taken the prisoner dilemma. And because of that, the, uh, the tests don't measure what you think. It just suggests that previously being on Amazon MTurk as a worker for a period of time exposed you to those questions. So if you use the original test or the original dilemma, if you use the original prisoner's dilemma, you're not going to be measuring the underlying psychological construct that you think you are um, because of non-naivete. That's an example. And then one other thing, uh, limitation is is the, the, the best thing about, about web surveys is their visual nature, and that's also really something that you have to be aware of, that everything from the color of the screen there's this whole thing about how things that are easy, easier to see, perceptual, um, can change your ratings of things. That everything about the screen, the pictures, the font, can prime people to answer a certain way, visual cues. So one study found that if you made a list of words, it was easier for people to rank things at the top of the list as better. They called it the, the top is good heuristic. And that was an example. Another thing, they, they, they did an experiment where they showed a picture of one group got a picture of someone shopping in a grocery store and the other got a picture of someone shopping for clothes. And then they asked them to, to how, how many times they've been shopping in the last like month. Well, the people who got the picture of the one in the, the person shopping in, in a clothes store estimated significantly fewer times. They said they had been shopping less than the people who got the picture of the people grocery store because the grocery store primed, uh, it gave an, a frequent example or something you do commonly, whereas the, the clothing store, you don't shop as often for clothes. It's little things like that, or one other one, they ask people to estimate their own health, and half the people got a picture of a woman jogging, and the other half got a picture of um, a lady in hospital. People who got a woman jogging said their health was worse. They <laughs> compared themselves to the woman jogging, the people who got a picture of the woman in the hospital said their health was better. They call that a contrast effect, but 
Um, it just shows how pictures and just anything that you have on the screen, if you're not careful, can prime people. Those are really interesting examples. So let's end on our, our own positive note. Um, you've, you've gone out, you've done these studies. Uh, what are the main selling points for you? What have been the, the, true, the true benefits of these approaches? I, I think that, um, you know, I, you never want to say that money is a big thing. But I think, I think cost really is a big thing because, like, it, it, what I've done is I went and I used, you know, I got $10,000 when I, when I um, came to SUNY Albany. I've got a little bit of money, and then I applied for an in-house grant. They gave us, like, five or $10,000 in-house grant. I used that to do an initial study on SurveyMonkey, and then I used those initial results to apply for a grant for another, you know, like $200,000, which I'm not going to get, I'm sure, but I hope I do. <laughs> but the idea was to use that to kind of refine the, the research question provide some preliminary evidence, do a couple of initial publications, and then once I get an understanding of what's going on, then go out and spend $100,000, $200,000 of the grant money, the government's money, to do it on a, a national scale. So it's like, because of the cheaper cost and the time to feel, if you do an Amazon internet survey, you can get your data back very quick. And, um, and and a lot of people will say, well, speediness, timeliness is, is not a good thing. Good science is not fast and it's not cheap. No, but if you go out and you spend $200,000 fielding a survey where you have very, very, very shitty measures and bad <laughs> theoretical hypothesis because you don't know what you're doing, you're wasting money and time. Um, you're also limiting the access to people. You know, Believe it or not, a lot of people have great, 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 great ideas, and they just don't have the resources to go out and do a longitudinal study of use in a city. So, right. I mean, giving people the tools to initially test their idea and get it out there, I think, benefits science, as long as you're aware that there are, you know, issues, I mean, but it, it, nonetheless, I think it's a huge thing. It opens the theorizing and, and research to a broader, you know, perspective of people, particularly people who haven't built up publication records that yeah. are sufficient enough to go out and get a $200,000 grant or a million dollar grant or something like that. So the low cost is a big issue. Another thing is that um, there is that Krosnick and, and uh, study, the Krosnick study showed that although the internet samples were less representative, that people did provide the most accurate response to that. Um, they, they provided more accurate reports about themselves online. And uh, the, the ideal one was Knowledge Networks. Knowledge Networks had the best mix of representativeness and accuracy, but they did. So if you're really interested in measuring the underlying concept, which is what Cook and Campbell say you should be focused on if you're theory testing, that's, there's a big strength there. And there's also less social desirability bias, so you're more likely to get sensitive answers about you know, sexual things or race than you would in a telephone survey or something like that. Um, another strength is that you can target specific people. Like, um, you know, if, if you're interested in surveying people who are police officers, a lot of the panels that they have, they when you join an online panel, you fill out a whole list of questions. How many TVs do you have? What's your occupation? Are you married? Are you, you know, whatever. And they have that already. So if you want to survey only people who have a TV, or who, you know, have a child or who are a parent, you can do that easier. You can't do that in RDD from telephone. You have to call and ask them a contingency question, and they say, no, I don't have a child. You say, well, we don't care about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you hang up, you know. So <laughs> target specific people is just huge. Um, and then the other thing is the ability to integrate visual and dynamic things. I saw this really cool thing where they have these matrix questions, how much do you agree or disagree? And after you answer each one, once you answer it, it shades out that room. So you know where you are in the matrix. So, like, you know, you answer the first question, I agree. It shades out that row, and the rest of the rows are still one. You do it, it shades it out, right? Or you can, if they skip a question, you can say, wait, you didn't answer it before they go to the next. Or if they are going too fast, 
you know, it looks like they're taking 10 seconds to go through seven pages. They have um, things where they actually have these informs of, hey, please reconsider, you know, you, you can interact with the respondent like that. Well, this has been super interesting. I think um, it's really important for people in our field to to know that there's other, other approaches, um, especially for pilot studies and to ask more questions. So um, it's really nice to have your expertise on the podcast. I appreciate it. Sometimes the newness of something scares people. And it may very well be that 10 years from now we find out that web surveys were horrible and that 10 years worth of research really was counterproductive. That may happen. But I think it, it's, it's good to, I mean, it, there are tons of college samples out there. Um, most of the perceptual deterrence research that's been done has actually been done with college students and undergrad criminology classes. Web surveys have people of all ages, all education, who live all across the United States. So they're more diverse on, you know, any number of characteristics. Mm -hmm. There aren't all college majors. Some don't even have a college degree, PhD. So the ability to not get scared because of its newness and to focus on the fact that you actually, for relatively cheaply, can get something that externally is, is much more valid than a college sample, I think it's a real benefit. Yeah. Um, hope more people do it, even though there's risk. Right. Well, thank you, Justin. I appreciate sure. it. On behalf of me, Kyle Green, and my co-producer, Sarah Logason, thank you for listening. And remember, please, give Methods a chance. Mm -hmm.